All right. Happy Sunday, church. All right. Well, hey, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, my name is Cody Wason, and I have the honor of serving here at Antioch as the lead pastor, and it really is an honor. And I just want to echo what Murray said. If you're a guest in the house with us tonight, it is an honor that you're here. Uh, I don't know if this gets said enough in churches, but it's a big deal. Coming into a, a new church for the first time, it's not easy, and, and there's a lot that goes into it. So I just want to say, I consider it an honor that you would spend your Sunday here with us. My hope is that you feel loved, you feel safe, and you feel encouraged to join us as we look at what it looks like to love Jesus and to live for Him and live like Him for the renewal of our city. Merry Christmas season. Can I say that? Get that thing yet? Can I say Merry Christmas season? Apparently I can to like 12 of you. Everyone else is super offended. But it is the best time of the year, hands down. And before uh, I jump into launching us into the next three weeks, our Christmas series, I want to pause. And uh, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that our church family has been, going, uh, has been on a journey of finding a new home. And so about four months ago, we found out kind of out of the blue that we wouldn't be able to be here uh, uh, past December. So uh, we went on a journey of trusting God for the next step. If you were here last week, I said we were on the half-yard line, believing God to get us over the edge, and I can say with all joy and confidence that we have a home, uh, and, and, it, and, it's, and uh, we have a little video I want to show you just to give you a little, a little feel for where it is and what it's like, and an excuse to play some pump-up music. So let's roll that video. It is so fun. It, that was fun just sitting listening to the excitement. <laughs> I love humanity. We're like so in awe of anything from the air. Like the drone footage, it was like, oh my gosh, you see that? They're in the air. Like how do they do that? Um, well, hey, uh, man, I could, t- I could give a whole sermon uh, on this journey, what it's been like the last four months. Um, I don't know if you followed the location of the drone, <laughs> uh, but if you couldn't, we're just a few blocks away uh, from where we are right now. Starting January 5th, we'll be at uh, 700 South and West Temple downtown. And, you know, just a few thoughts before I move on, and that's this. You know, when we started the church five years ago, we, one of the words we felt clearly that we were supposed to be a church for the city in the city. And as we've been uh, on, the, on this, not only this last four-month journey of finding a new space, but really ever since we've gotten uh, to Salt Lake City, uh, we've been given opportunities to, to go to the suburbs. And, hey, I live in the suburbs. I'm all about it. But we felt clearly uh, that we were supposed to be in the city. And so as the, the four months marched on, 
we held out believing God that he would make good on his promise and his call to us to be in the city. And uh, it was a week ago that we didn't know where we'd be uh, in a few weeks, but God showed up in a way that only he can. I mean, guys, this space is incredible. This space is cheaper. Uh, we're stewarding the finances better. Uh, the, we're going to be able to be there for at least the next couple of years uh, to call home. Um, and, and, and we're going to unpack this more in January as I walk through kind of a vision for 2020 uh, series. Um, but what this is, like, yes, I'm excited. The, the venue itself is cool. It looks cool. It feels cool. It holds a lot of people. But more than just having a new set of walls, uh, I'm really excited that God is inviting us to partner with him in the vision, not just to have a home, not just to manage church, not just to manage the kingdom, but to build it. And I just want to invite you, even now, I know it's gonna, we got the Christmas series that we're going to dig in on, but come January, uh, what I am so fired up about is that God's calling us back to the sim- simple things uh, of following him, living out the gospel, to see the, the kingdom of God built in Salt Lake City, and we've got a home that can hold a lot of people, and I'm really excited for it. So, praise God, let's clap one more time or something. Okay. Well, I don't think I am like really unique in saying this, um, but it's the best time of the year. Like I wholeheartedly believe that this is the best time of the year. And uh, even right now, like December 8th, we're a couple weeks away from Christmas. The anticipation. Now I'm 30 years old, so I can't really like geek out like I used to as a child. Um, I can, I guess. I just don't want to. Um, But I mean, why do I not want to? Because this was me as a child, the anticipation of Christmas. The like, I cannot wait to like have the moment. And the, uh, um, the tradition for me was every Christmas Eve, I would throw up. I think I, might have to- I think I might have told you all that. I'm one of those people, when I get really excited, I throw up. I don't know if that's like I'm one of the people or I am the person but it was like a little, here was like the Wayson family tradition, Christmas Eve, uh, and I, I don't mean to keep talking about my eating habits as a kid or as an adult, but uh, our family's place was Red Lobster, and, um, and so we would drive 45 minutes, because that's, we lived in the boonies, and we would drive, 40, it was like an, an event for us, it was like we looked forward all year for those biscuits, and that like, that moment where we like, you like, you feel like you've made it, because you're at Red Lobster. And there's like a live tank. And as a 10-year-old, I was like, it doesn't get better than this. It doesn't get fancier than this. And so we would go to Red Lobster, and the tradition was I would either, either throw up in the Red Lobster bathroom before we got in the car, or I would throw up as soon as we got home. Because as the night wore on, I just couldn't, I couldn't wait. There's something about, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> but now having kids, like Christmas is now all about them. And I'm just like, they're already, like, Eleanor is already like every day. She doesn't quite fully grasp the idea of a, of a present that has to be a surprise. So almost every day we have a conversation where she says, tell me, like, what am I getting for Christmas? Well, no, 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 it's going to be under the tree. Well, just tell me what you got me. That's not how this works. Can I open it now? No, that's not how this works. Can you show me on the computer what you got me? That's not how this works. Can I call Gammy and ask her what I got for Christmas? That's not how this works. She is, I'm, I'm watching the anticipation build in her. It is the best time of the year. Here's the question I want to ask us this, uh, this night, <laughs> this year, no, tonight. I want to ask this question. 
when does Christmas begin? Like, when does the Christmas season begin for you and I? And when does the Christmas story begin in Scripture? These next three weeks, we're going to take maybe a little less traditional route to the Christmas story. There's a very real thing that I feel up here, and that is this. There's two times a year uh, when churches fill up, Easter and Christmas. And there's an expectation. It's one of the, those are the two times a year where I get up here on stage and you know what I'm about to tell you. You know that I'm not about to dive into a series on Proverbs. You know that we're about to unpack the Christmas story and its familiarity. And we're going to talk about the manger and the wise men and the star and, and Mary and Joseph. And, we're going to, and, and it's going to be amazing. But it's an, it's an awkward feeling standing here being like, they know what I'm about to tell them. How do I make this interesting? When the reality is most of you could get up here and kind of do a good job of telling me the Christmas story. So as we pray through as a content team, like, what do we do? I don't, I have zero desire to get up here and try to spice up the Christmas story to make it interesting. I'm not looking to try to like take a new angle no one's ever heard of before on who the wise men were and blow your minds and maybe you'll find it interesting. Like, God, what do you what do you want us to do these next three weeks? And I felt like this, that's where this came from. There's more to the story. And we started thinking of the timing of the story. And is it random? Is the story of the, is Jesus' birth and the timing of it in the narrative of Scripture, is it, is it random? Because it's so easy for you and I, the calendar turns, now I used to think the calendar turns to December. And we're all like, Christmas. Now it's like November 1st. And just everyone goes crazy for Christmas. But whatever it is, like, we're programmed. Like, we just do it. And, and, and it's familiar, and we get it. But what if there's more to the story? What if the timing actually matters? So, once again, so I'm going to really lay it out clearly. There's going to be two questions that we're going to try to answer tonight. One, when does Christmas begin? When does the story of Christmas begin? And then you'll find out the other one about halfway through the message, the other question. Before we jump into, into, into Scripture here, I just find it fascinating that for the amount of people in this room, Christmas begins at all different times for each one of us. Like, I already a couple of weeks ago called out people who listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving. I won't do it again, although I just did. <laughs> but, like, for some of us, like, like, the moment leaves start falling from the tree, it's like Christmas music. Everything, put the hats on, put the coats on, get the tree out, get the lights up. Okay, that's great, if that's you. Some of us, it's like we don't start Christmas till after Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving, it's like, boom, transform the house. What about actual celebrating Christmas? Like, a little, I told you a little bit about the Waston family tradition growing up. So we would come home from dinner, make sure I was okay, and then we would play games and then the last thing we would do before the, the night ends, we would, me and my sister would get to open one present, and then we would go to bed. Now, I didn't know that that wasn't normal. So I think it's more normal now than it was. But as a kid, I thought everyone on the planet that celebrates Christmas does it the way that the Waysons do it on 1880 Quail Court in Woodstock, Illinois. And you go to Red Lobster, and you eat a fancy meal, and you throw up because you're excited. You go home, and you, you argue over the rules of some games, and then you open up a present, and then you go to bed. But I found out that that's like, to some people, opening up a present Christmas Eve is like off limits. How could you do that? I didn't know. 
So wherever you fall on that, Christmas morning. I found out as I grew up that my Christmas morning experience was not normal. So you have like, uh, I don't know what your experience is. Obviously, all of you know your experience if you celebrate Christmas growing up, and you can relate here. But, you know, there's the TV shows, the movies of like kids waking up before the sun's even close to, to, to coming up. And, and it's pitch black, and they wake up, and they run to their parents, and they wake them up, and they all run downstairs and start tearing open gifts. And it's like Christmas. That is not how it worked in the Wason family. My sister and I would wake up pretty early, but we learned early on how this routine was going to go. We would go downstairs, and we would wait while my parents slept. We were not allowed to wake them up. We were not allowed in their room. They made that very clear. And so we waited and we waited. And then eventually, see, they, they, our rooms were on the second level. Eventually, you could hear the stirring and the footsteps, and you knew they're awake. But that didn't mean it was, anything was about to happen because what was about to happen was they were going to take showers and get ready for the day. So they would take showers, get dressed. We're sitting, my, me and my sister, awkwardly, nothing to do, just waiting, waiting. Now, here's the thing about my dad. I'm 30 years old. I've never known him to not have hair past his shoulders. To this day, right now, he's got it almost all the way down to his bottom. He's just, he was a DJ, a classic rocker. That's how we met. Like, he's just that guy. He's that guy. (laughs) And, And so the next thing, the shower would turn off, the pipes would go silent, and then you'd hear the blow dryer. And you knew you were getting closer. And then they would come downstairs fully dressed, and then they'd go into the kitchen, and they'd make their coffee, they'd get their drinks. They'd come, and they'd sit down finally like an hour and a half, two hours after me and my sister woke up, and they'd sit down, and they'd look at us and say, okay, what are you guys waiting for? And Christmas could begin. It was the worst. It was awful. Yeah, no wonder I threw up. Yeah. Yeah, it's their fault. No, just kidding. Okay. Here we go. So where does the story of Christmas start in Scripture? When do we, where do we begin seeing it celebrated, spoken of? We're going to start where we normally do. This time of year, we start looking at the Gospels. There's four Gospels, uh, and three of them tell, the, tell their story of the birth of Jesus. Now, there's one, Mark, who you study Mark, and you're like, man, that dude was way more about Jesus' death than anything else. He didn't even bother to put Jesus' birth in his Gospel. He's like, my audience doesn't need to know about his birth. They need to know about everything else. So we have three accounts of the birth of Jesus. And I've got to remember that these, these people writing these accounts, they were actually people with personalities and wirings and giftings, and they were writing to specific audiences for a specific purpose. Let's look at where they start the Christmas story. Matthew 1.1, he begins the story of Christmas with a genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Not the most exciting beginning, but there's a clear reason for it. Matthew was a, 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 a keeper of books, a tax man. He was very specific, detailed, accurate. He had a very specific reason for everything he wrote. In fact, if you study the gospel that Matthew wrote, he references the Old Testament 65 times. 43 of those times, he quotes it verbatim. And 12 times, he, he straight out says that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's very clear that Matthew is writing to a Jewish crowd trying to get them to connect who Jesus is to what they were grown up learning and understanding of Scripture. 
And so he starts by saying, the most important thing for you to do to connect who Jesus is, is to know where he comes from. And you're going to understand a little bit why in a few minutes. But that's Matthew. That's where he starts the Christmas story. The next is Luke. Now, Luke's different than Matthew. He's a historian. You read his gospel, and he is so uh, uh, um, focused on the audience having a mental map of what's happening. He is very structured and specific. Uh, He's the most detailed when it comes to names and places and characters. He starts off in Luke 1. Actually, he starts by telling about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. Then he starts getting into the birth of Jesus, and he starts by saying, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And I'm just, I, I cut it off there for a reason. One is time, and the other is, I think you can even see, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel named Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. He's trying to get us to like paint a picture in our head. Who is this happening to? Where is it happening? He's where we get the, the census that's been ordered and where it's happening and who's taking place. And what he's doing is actually brilliant for his audience. What Luke does is he paints this huge picture of all of these human decisions. There's a king, uh, a heathen king who decides to have a census and forces like a young pregnant uh, woman with a new uh, husband to go on this long journey. And there's no room and all these people are coming, descending on this part of Judea. And here's what's happening. And then at the same time, he starts to link all those human decisions with the plan of God and the the purposes of God. And he's starting to show his audience that God is at work uh, uh, even through the decisions of leaders and of, uh, of men. It's actually brilliant. But that's where Luke decides to start the story of Christmas by talking about the angel being sent. And then we get John. John just takes a left turn. Here's where John begins his Christmas story. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that's been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. So if you read that and you're like, well, how do we know that that's like him talking about the birth of Jesus? It's just talking about the word. And Well, a few verses later, he, he gives you his synopsis of the birth of Jesus in John 1.14. And he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. That's about all John feels like we need to understand about the birth of Jesus. John does something absolutely remarkable. He claims that the story of Christmas doesn't start in Bethlehem, doesn't start in the manger, doesn't start with the wise men, doesn't start with the star, doesn't start with Mary and Joseph, the census, the king. It doesn't start with these Old Testament precursors to the Messiah. It doesn't even start with the whispers of the promise of the coming. It actually starts before creation. He draws us back to the creation account in the beginning was the Word. And then he would say in a few verses later, and that Word became flesh in the person of Jesus. John's assertion here is actually huge for us to get if we're going to get the gospel story right and the Christmas story right. And that's this. Christmas is not God's plan B. You know, it's easy for us to read the stories, look at Scripture, and to think, man, 
God had a plan. We messed it up. He, took, he kind of surveyed the, the scene and said, okay, I'm going to pivot to Jesus. And I'm going to bring Jesus in to fix the problem. And the claim that John makes here is like, that's, that's really bad theology. Jesus was there from the beginning. It was always his plan A. The story of the gospel that starts in Jesus, the incarnate, uh, being born, it was the plan A. The Christmas story actually starts in the mind of God before time. And then it's whispered to us over and over and over throughout the Old Testament through promises that we're going to look at here. But that's what I want us to wrestle with tonight, that the Christmas story isn't a random event. God didn't randomly say, okay, I guess we'll do the Jesus thing now, and I guess we'll start that plan and see if that works. But that there was a reason that it was time, and, there was, there was, and if there was a reason that that was the time for Jesus to come, then we now have to wrestle with the next question facing us tonight, and that's, that's what do we do with the Old Testament? What do we do with the waiting? If it was God's plan A since day one, since before we, you and I were created, that, God, that Jesus would enter the scene, that God would become man in the form of a baby to save you and I from our sin, to give us life, to set us free, then what do we do with the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years that they waited? It's a relevant question, not only because you and I are waiting right now for Christmas, we're in the waiting. We're like two weeks away. We can see it. But it's not here yet. But because in each one of our lives, there's things we're waiting for. There's breakthroughs. There's healings. There's moments. There's encounters that you and I are desperately believing for, wondering, when is it going to happen? And in the, in, in the waiting, is there purpose? Is there reason? I want to I dig in on, on, essentially, what's the point? What's the point of over half the Bible that they waited? And if there's a point to that, maybe there's a point to the waiting you and I are in. Now, check this out. Okay, pause. So, um, I'm like prepping this message. I'm feeling pretty good about it. I feel like God's given some really good stuff. I'm learning. I'm digging in. And I go to, uh, I have a date with uh, Kate, my wife, last night. It was incredible. And we're talking about this. And she's like, oh, this is so good, good stuff. And then this morning, um, kind of actually lunchtime, 11 or 12, I'm up there uh, at our counter eating lunch. And she goes, hey, I forgot to show you this book that I've been, I, I read to the kids this morning. It's a Christmas book. And I'm like, oh, cool, way to go. <laughs> uh, I'm, okay, sure, show it to me. She hands me this book, super solid, like feels really good on your hand. Um, just, I don't know what they do to it, but it feels good. And um, says, this is the Christmas story. Like, solid, makes sense. And then I turn over to the back, and about noon today, I read that this book says, the Christmas story didn't begin with a baby, it began with a promise. And I was like, oh, cool. They're writing books about what I thought was really cool that I was getting from the Lord. Like, that's, that's good for you, whoever you are. 
And so I'm like, wow, that's so good. That's like kind of what I feel like God's saying. And so I start opening it to this kid's book, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is it. This is, why did I even prep a message? This is incredible. So we're going to read some of it together. You got to pivot. In life, you got to pivot. I found out this book existed at noon. We're doing a book reading at 530. So here we go. So the, again, this is, uh, this is under the umbrella of trying to kind of dig in on what, what's, what's the point of your waiting? And how do we wrestle with if, if, Christmas, if the Christmas story begins in creation, then what was this all about? Okay, so I'm going to do my best here. I'm not great at holding a mic and modeling a book, but we're going to do it together. Uh, we're going to look at a few pages here. Unless anyone wants to volunteer to come uh, hold the book for me. Uh, if that's you, you can just come up on stage. Ben House. Ben House. All right. All right. You are my Vanna White. You got to show them all, dude. You got to show them all. Here we go. So we're going to start here. Look at this. You Make sure they can see it, too. You got to rotate a little bit. And then, and then you got to pause at me so I can read. And then you'll just keep going. All right. So here it says, God made a promise after Adam and Eve, the first people, disobeyed him and sin darkened the world. God promised that someday someone would bring light into the dark world. Turn the page and pause. So I think this is kind of cool. Genesis 3.15, maybe, just maybe, is the first promise of the Christmas story. The first promise of Jesus. This is God. He's describing the effects of sin. He's describing what sin is going to do to you and I's relationship with each other, with God. And he's speaking to uh, this snake, the enemy who's, who's uh, uh, taken the form of a snake to, to uh, deceive Adam and Eve. And he's talking to the enemy and he says, I will, put, I will put an enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And then he changes his tone. And says, he, speaking of the offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Most, most theologians believe this is the first time in Scripture that the, it's the foretelling of Jesus. That the offspring of, an offspring of the woman would crush the enemy, would crush the darkness, and all the darkness would be able to do would be to strike at his heel. Next page. Many years later after that, God promised a man named Abraham that his family would have more people in it than the bright stars in the dark sky and that one of those people would bring light into the dark world. Abraham believed and he praised God. There you go. Make sure they can see it. Just again, this is a kid's book. Just in case you're like, that's a weird book for adults to be like, this is for our kids and, we're, and it's amazing. Abraham's family grew bigger and bigger, just like God had promised. They became the nation of Israel, and they asked God to give them a king. So God chose a boy from a little town called Bethlehem to be their king. His name was David. David was a very good king, but the world was still dark. There you go, solid. Yeah, we're at the right page. Okay. Then God promised David that someone from his family would be the one who would bring light into the world. Now, hold on. So far, he's talked about, uh, what, Abraham and David, right? Promised that, that, that the coming one would come. It makes a little more sense now that Matthew starts by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
making sure they're connecting Jesus to these moments. David believed and he praised God. Many years later, God told a man named Isaiah to give a very special message to his people. The light of the world is coming. I want to pause here. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government, there will be, uh, oh, sorry, the greatness of the government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding with justice and righteousness from this time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This, this whisper, this promise, it's coming. It's coming. Isaiah would go on to explain that the one who was coming would be God himself. God would come to them as a baby. The baby would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the people waited and waited, and waited, and waited, and waited, and waited, and waited for 400 more years. And that's the end of our book reading together. Give it up for Ben House. Okay, so in the waiting, Isaiah 33, Lord be gracious to us, we wait for you. Lamentations 3, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. And Micah 7, 7, but I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Now for us, there's like these are really cool promises. Living in light of Jesus on this side of the cross, we're like, oh, that's so cool. In fact, there's a, there's a promise in Micah. There's this prophetic moment where Micah says that the that this one who is coming will come with healing in his wings. I think this is one of the most incredible ways that Jesus fulfills prophecy from the Old Testament. So there's a, this, imagine us, we're like in the Old Testament, we're the people of Israel, the prophet stands up and he's like, the one who's coming will come with healing in his wings. And then we break for lunch. And we're all like, wings? Who's coming? What's that going to be like? Like, they were actually people who I'm sure actually had questions. Like, hey, hold on. Before everyone leaves, can you elaborate? What, are they in his wings, on his wings? Are they on him? Did he put a backpack? Like, who? What are these wings? Okay, right? Okay, so then you, read, you start reading the Gospels and the life of Jesus, and, and it's like he starts fulfilling all these promises. I f- fascinating. There's a story in the New Testament, the story in the gospel where, uh, where there, uh, Jesus is walking through a crowded street and there's a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. And he's walking through this crowded street and she, she uh, you know, finds her way, reaches out, and she just touches the hem of his garment as it walks by, as it's flowing as he walks, and she's healed. And you read that and you're like, whoa, what a crazy miracle. Praise God. Let's go. When you, read, when you research a little bit, the Hebrew word for wing and for hem of the garment are the same thing. That woman touched the hem of the garment and boom, Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. There was healing in the hems of his garment. That's awesome. No one likes it. Let's go. But here's what I want to try to take us into. 
Like we read these promises like, oh, he's going to come from the family of Abraham and David and he's going to do all these things and he's going to be a son and he's going to restore. He's going to do all these things. And we're like, yeah, that's great. But think about it for a moment. Put yourself into the shoes of an Old Testament person of Israel. You're living a few generations away from the garden, from creation. You know that the God has set this thing up. He wants relationship. He, he's got, he has the way for us to live in right uh, a relationship with him. And he's got what we need. And yet a sin has entered the world. Humanity is broken and flawed. And now what God has done, he's called the people to himself. You and I, we're in this people. And he's, he set up this thing called the sacrificial system. Which when you and I in 2019, we read it, we just like, our Bible falls open to Leviticus. We're like, oh my gosh, like this is horrible. You're like, what's happening? You just start to read and understand what's happening in this moment. Is God is, it has been very clear from the beginning that the results of sin is death. And sin always requires a sacrifice. And so we set up the sacrificial system where you and I can repent of our sins, bring a sacrifice, and be made right before God. And that happens every day. When you're going to school, when you're going to work, when you're walking through, people every day, all day, are bringing sacrifices. It is a constant thing in our lives. So constant that you and I wouldn't even think a second thing about it. Dusty could walk by me with a goat on his shoulders, and I'd be like, yep, been there. I get it. Like, like that's just... It's life. And yet, so we're constantly living aware that these sacrifices we're making, like they allow us to be in right standing with God, but the sacrifices aren't defeating sin. We have to wake up the next morning knowing we're going to be living under the weight of sin. We're not set free. The sacrificial system didn't set us free. But what it did is that for generations, it ingrained in the people, my sin brings death. My sin brings distance. My sin brings destruction. And there's nothing I can do about it. I can't be good enough. I can't sacrifice enough to be done with sin. There's not like a quota I have to hit. And once I've done so many sacrifices, I'm done with sin. I don't have to... Over and over, the sacrificial system, not only did it point to Jesus coming to be the ultimate sacrifice, but part of the waiting, part of what was happening was God trying to get people to understand how big the problem of sin is and how weak our attempts to overcome it are. So when you're living in that place every day, being reminded, I'm not enough. I can't do this. Oh, there's 600-something laws I can't, okay, oh, he's going to reduce them down to 10. I can't do those either. I, I can't do it. And I just got, I'm just going to sacrifice. I just, I'm never going to get out of this. And sin, and I'm just, it's a big deal. So then when do you hear the mouthpiece of God stand up before you and say things like he's coming? And he's going to make everything right. And he's going to, the government, he will be in charge of everything. And he's coming to squash, to crush the head of darkness, to put it into it. These wouldn't be flippant things that you were like, okay, yeah, I heard that before. These are like, when? This would have been their whole world. But when? I'm ready. I'm ready to be done. I can't, this, I can't do it. 
I'm exhausted. When is this happening? So these promises, I just want to make sure we're putting them in the proper light. They were everything. When he says, then when he says a child will be born, it's like, wait, hold on. I was more comfortable with the wings than I am with, you're telling me it's a kid? And then Isaiah is the mouthpiece that God uses to tell him it's actually going to be God. Like God himself is going to come. He's going to come and he's going to put an end to this whole thing. He's going to put an end to the sacrificial system. He's going to put an end to you and I having to wake up every morning realizing I'm probably going to have to sacrifice today because I can't get out of this. I can't do it. I need help. He's putting an end to it. The promises and whispers of Christmas would have meant everything to the people of God. And so when they say, we will wait for you, they meant it. It's good to wait quietly. To wait quietly. That means there were probably people that weren't waiting quietly. They were upset. They were frustrated. They didn't understand. But I will look to the Lord and I will wait for the God of my salvation. They waited for a long time. You know, my wife's story, some of you guys know it. Uh, for the last over about over two years, she's uh, been in chronic pain. And I say that, having lived with her, not lived in the, the pain, not experienced, but lived with her through those two years. And I know what it can sound like. Like, oh, two years of chronic pain. I've heard worse. You probably have. But we're not here to, like, you know, compare people's needs. <laughs> Just for a moment. Like, sometimes I have to remind myself with Kate. Every day for the last two years, she's woken up in excruciating pain, needing meds, needing surgeries, needing doctor's visits, needing all the things, can't, can't move as much, can't do as much as she wants to, can't sit down without needing help. In, in and out of doctor's offices, on more bottles of medication than I ever thought we'd have in a home. Like, for you and I, it's like, oh, that's so sad. Two years, chronic pain, bummer. For her, it's her whole world. There's not an hour that goes by that she's not thinking about her chronic pain. And so I thought, you know, I was at, I was at dinner with her on Saturday night. That's last night. <laughs> and uh, I said, hey, I'm about to talk about, like, what's this whole thing about waiting? What's the point? You love God. You've given him everything. You, you, you trust him. What's the two years? What, what's the waiting for, for, like for you? What's it been like? This is what I heard her say. Not verbatim, but this is what I took away from that moment. She said, it's less about what's actually happening and more about what I'm learning. I can learn to be resentful and bitter, or I can learn to trust and love and believe in the midst of waiting and in the midst of pain. At the end of the day, where else will I go? Where will resentfulness and bitterness get me? And I just think about the story of the Old Testament. And not only was the waiting serving a purpose that we would understand how big sin is and how small we are to defeat it. But they were waiting, and they were worshiping, and they were trusting. And they didn't know who Jesus was going to be. They didn't know the gospel. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They didn't know where their salvation was going to come from. But they believed, and they pressed in, and they made a lot of mistakes along the way, but they believed. 
I don't know your breakthrough. I don't know your story. I don't know what you're believing for. But when I read scripture, when I look at the reality that Christmas wasn't plan B, that there's actually way more to the Christmas story, an entire book called the Old Testament. Well, that's not a book. It's a bunch of books, but go with me. An entire part of the book dedicated to, to the prequel to Christmas to the whispering, to the waiting, to the longing, to the yearning, and I don't know, I don't have the timeline of heaven. I don't know why you don't have your breakthrough. I don't know why someone else got healed and you didn't. I don't know why some breakthroughs, some encounters, some things just happen and some things don't. I don't know. But what I know is that whole Old Testament, those generations gone by, the hundreds of years, they weren't pointless. There was a purpose to them. And I know people in the room don't like to hear that, that there's a purpose to the waiting. But that's the thing about living life with Jesus. Like even waiting can become purposeful. We're being invited this Christmas season as we long for that day, as we long for Christmas morning, as we long for the day that we'll get our breakthrough, as we sit on the opposite side of the cross and we're the Old Testament believers yearned and longed for the coming of Jesus. We long and yearn for him coming back. Here's what I, wanna, I want us to dwell in and dwell on. That even if it takes hundreds of years, God's, God keeps his promises. We're singing, we're celebrating this season, the birth of Jesus. We are literally celebrating that while it took hundreds of years, he made good on his promise. It might take your whole life. He'll make good on it. Kate and I have often found comfort in the reality that if she never gets healed in this life, she'll be in heaven one day and she'll be healed. Healing will come. He'll make good on his promise. That's what we're celebrating this Christmas season. The hope that you and I are living in a time and a space where God still keeps his promises. The hope that that baby in a manger will remind us once again that there's purpose in the waiting. That they weren't, he doesn't, he's not wasting our years. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is for me. I'm still wrestling through God. What? With the things I'm believing for, the things I'm asking for, what is this season? What's the waiting all about? And I don't have an answer for you other than this. We get to fight for it. The thing I love and admire about my wife, she spent two years fighting for her intimacy and her relationship with Jesus in a way that she would have never fought before. And it's real. Like when she can wake up in the morning and be like, I'm in pain and it is crushing me. But I believe you are who you say you are. And I love you and I trust you. I give you my life. I give you my future. I give you my kids. What do you want me to do today? I'm in. I'm all in. I look at her and I'm like, That's, it's worth it. If you and I can come out on the other side of whatever season of waiting we're in, having fought, to fall more in love with God, fought to trust him a little more, fought to believe him a little more, fought to trust that there's nowhere else that we could run that would, that would satisfy us more, I think we'll be better served than we are today. Merry Christmas season. The thrill of hope is that when Jesus showed up on the scene, 
It was this physical, walking, breathing reminder that it may take some time, but God makes good on his promise and that there's more to the story. Join me as I pray. Jesus, we worship you, we honor you, we love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you're not plan B. Thank you that we're not plan B. Jesus, thank you that even in the waiting, we can meet with you. We can fall more in love with you. We can worship you. We can trust you. I just say that, I just feel this, that there's people in the room that that Jesus wants to tell you, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it. Just like in the story of Lazarus when he says this, this sickness will not end in death, but for my glory. He's looking at the seasons of our lives and saying the season isn't for death. It's for the glory of my name and so that you and I can have a relationship that's been fought for. Jesus, you're worth fighting for. Thank you that you look at every one of us and say we're worth fighting for. I pray this Christmas season we would live in remembrance of the promise. Live in light that you are a promise keeper. You're worth it, Jesus. Where else would we go? We love you. We need you. Amen.